Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the first in-person version of the DC Power Hour. Your hosts are George and Alan here. Alan's the one on this side, the older one. I'm the younger one. By all of about six months. Unless you've changed maths, that still makes me younger. Okay. Younger, but not wiser. Well, we'll see that by the end of the podcast. <laughs> okay. Now, this one's a little bit different. Normally, if you're uh, one of our ardent listeners to our uh, DC Power Hour, you will normally realize that we have a particular subject which we massacre for about 45 minutes. Today, we're going to be a little bit different. As we have an actual live audience, our chances are that we're going to get some questions from the audience, and we're going to see if we can answer them correctly. If we don't answer them correctly, we'll kind of waffle about it and make something up and give you the usual answer to any battery question, and that is, anybody know? Yes, Luke? It depends. It depends. Exactly. Did so. you bring a pack? Uh, yes, I got a pack of depends in here. Actually, I'm wearing one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As I say, you listeners have listened to it, you'll realize that uh, we're, there's something about Blarney in the, in the, in the heading of this uh, podcast. And I thought that just in case that nobody here understands this story of Blarney, I would ask my Irish colleague to um, explain what Blarney is all about, to start with. Well, it's about you and I, George, but uh, they, if you heard the term a load of Blarney, or it's, it's Blarney, there was a castle in Ireland owned by the Lord of Munster. castle was just outside Cork called Blarney Castle. And uh, back in the 1300s, the uh, Earl of Leinster, which was a completing kingdom, was uh, told by the British crown to try and take over the Blarney Castle. Actually, it, was, it wasn't the 30s, it was, it was Queen Elizabeth I. A, he owed the Queen taxes, and B, he didn't want to really secede his castle, so he kept making excuses. And eventually he just got back to Queen Elizabeth and she said, that's a load of blarney. In other words, a load of excuses and waffle and everything else. So that's, that's where the term blarney comes from. But more interesting, to bring in my Scottish friend here, is that you've heard of the blarney stone, and to kiss the blarney stone gives you the gift of eloquent speech, which, by the way, just a sidetrack here, we were at a BATCON conference one time and I was chairing it, and... We talked about the gift of a Blarney, and I said, well, they don't tell you that Blarney gives you the gift of eloquent speech, but it doesn't give you the gift of brevity. So anyway, somebody piped up from the audience and said, Alan didn't kiss the Blarney stone, he sat on it. <laughs> Think about it. So anyway, I was going to bring in George here. The actual Blarney stone is reputed to have come from Scotland. It was half of the stone of Scone, which is the coronation stone of the Scottish monarchy, am I correct, George? Yes. But because the Lord of Blarney supported the Robert the Bruce in Scotland, in gratitude he gave him half of the stone, stone of Scone, which is a very sacred stone. But anyway, so 
They call us the Blarney Brothers because we tend to waffle a lot. Eloquent speech, I don't know where that comes from, but uh, excuses, yes, we're pretty good at. So, okay. back to you, George. Oh, I was going to say, let's, let's get down to the subject. What's our first question, please? Do we have a question from the audience? So, if you have to do ohmic testing on a battery and you see you need to add some liquid, are you supposed to wait a certain amount of time before you actually test it properly? First of all, when you say add liquid, so you're talking about a vented lead-acid battery, when the level is low, you only add water, a deionized or distilled water. Never add anything else. But if the level is low and it's not below the level of the plates, it should have no... It should make no difference to an ohmic reading. Because with ohmic reading, what you're doing is you measure the, you're measuring essentially the metallic p conductance path through the battery. So, you know, the, the, although the electrolyte, sulfuric acid, comes into, into play slightly, it's only a very small percentage. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but if you were to add water, I don't think it would make that much difference to the ohmic reading. George? You know, it's a sad, but I have to agree with him. Oh. It's difficult, this. No, he's right. He's right. The only time you would, and this is where you, you, I know what you're talking about in a sense there, Doug, is that if you were going to do a discharge test and it was down low, um, if you were to add water at that point, then you have to do a equalized charge before you, uh, you do the discharge test. And then you have to leave it for three days after you've done the equalize in order to allow the bubbles to dissipate from the plates. Otherwise, you'll get less actual capacity measured. If you don't want to wait three days, and do what I used to do. hope this is not being recorded, by the way. But anyway, just go around and hit the cells, get rid of the bubbles, and then you don't have to wait 72 hours. That's why you went to sales and got out of the service department, wasn't it? Well, I, I kind of failed at sales because uh, people kept telling me I was too honest to sell anything. <laughs> so okay, yeah, use a rubber hammer, Nigel. Yeah, not the, not the. Actually, when I was with the previous company, the director of engineering to demonstrate a valve-regulated lead-acid battery to demonstrate the fact that it didn't leak. Uh, when he had a customer coming through the engineering lab, he would have a valve-regulated lead-acid battery sitting there, and he walk up and hit with a hammer, a regular hammer just to crack the case, just to prove to the customer that it didn't leak. Very effective, but uh, just don't try that regular hammer with a flooded cell. Okay, what's the next question, ladies and gentlemen? Oh. Well, everybody must know everything. No, no, no. I've uh, been teaching for seven years, and I know nobody knows anything. Our friend here mentioned omic measurements. Uh, just as a follow-through to that as well, does everybody know when you should take your baseline omic measurements? Somebody said after six months, that's correct. Three to six months, depending on the chemistry of the battery. But uh, please don't take your baseline readings just after the battery's installed because they will change because a new battery is not fully formed and it takes about six months, three to six months to, for it to get fully formed and then you will get your accurate baseline readings. Now I have an excuse to dispute, disagree slightly with them, is that when you actually do the initial installation, you have to establish a baseline. It's not going to be the one by which you judge the eventual 
failure or the you know the measurement of the battery, but you want to establish a baseline after this, the system set up, so that you can identify any infant mortality failures. You will see them rise. In other words, if you suddenly see one that is rising rapidly, you know you have a problem in that, and you can change it out. You have then you reset the baseline again at the six month into three to six month interval, and use that as the baseline for measuring the uh, the state of the battery from then on. But you do you do in fact need to establish that first baseline in order just to monitor what's happening to the battery during its uh, period of balancing out. I can't disagree with that, George, but I wouldn't call that a baseline. In actual fact, if you're smart, you do some ohmic measurements on the battery before it's installed. To give you an example, I had to go up to a battery manufacturer, actually not too far from here, and uh, do some initial readings. It was paid for by the customer, and out of 264 battery cells, we found 13 that didn't make it because of our initial ohmic measurements. And then we correlated those with a load test on the batteries and they were 100%. So it is a good idea to do some ohmic measurements on a, if you can, on a battery before you install it. Even then, before what George refers to, you'll find out some infant mortality cells. How do the rules apply to a NICAD battery? Don't apply at all. Ohmic measurements, I better phrase this correctly because I know Eagle Eye spell sells uh, specific gravity testers, but Ohmic measurements on a NICAD battery will probably only tell you if you have a problem at end of life. They don't really trend because the composition of the plates, unlike lead, lead calcium, they don't degrade over the life of the battery. Now, George, do you agree or disagree there? Oh, again, I have to agree. It's, um, the NICAD is a much more difficult battery to gauge the state of charge and its, uh, its condition. You're looking for other changes with respect to voltage, temperature, and just behavior, really. I'd say, luckily, NICADs are much more reliable. You tend, you'll see it. The biggest problem you're likely to see with a NICAD towards the end of life could possibly be you end up with dendrite shorts within the cells, and then you can get thermal runaway. Some good pictures of some very melted NICAD batteries as a result of thermal runaway. Yeah, and, and George, these dendrites will also show up with a moment test on the battery. But I say it's only towards the end of life. Uh, no, 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 no. no. With, with a lead battery, particularly lead calcium battery, which is predominant here in the United States, in the rest of the world primarily, they use a type of a plante cell, which is a pure lead plate. It doesn't have a hardener added. Calcium's a hardener plate plate additive. And uh, with uh, same with uh, selenium or antimony. So as the plate ages, positive plate ages usually, you will get a, the structure of a plate will change and the resistance will increase. Or the inverse, if it's conductance, the re- conductance will decrease. So that's why you very useful for a lead acid battery. Where it's lead calcium, lead antimony, lead selenium, well, it's a tubular plate, well, it's a flat plate, but uh, with the nickel-cadmium battery, with the nickel and cadmium plates, you don't get that de- degradation of a plate. So that's why ohmic measurements are really don't do you any good. But uh, if the customer wants it, what do you do? 
you do omic measurements. See, probably the, the, the other part about it, I would warning on an ICAD battery is that you should never under any circumstances use the same equipment to top up the NICAD as you use to top up a lead-acid battery. It simply is, you don't even want to keep them in the same room. You shouldn't have NICADs and uh, lead-acid in the same room because the gases off can affect each other's battery if they're, if they're large enough. We, in fact, at the, at the last la training lab we had in the old building, we actually had some NICADs, but uh, the company actually said to us, that's, that's okay, they're, they're not big enough to affect either lot. But um, definitely you would never use the same watering equipment. You have to use two sets. And, and it, it's more applicable to the fuser hydrometer because the electrolyte in a lead-acid battery is diluted sulfuric acid, whereas in a NICAD battery is potassium hydroxide. One's an acid and another's an alkaline. So you, you don't want to really use the same hydrometer, go from lead acid to nickel cadmium or, or the other way around. But, but you shouldn't even be using a hydrometer on a nickel cadmium battery. George, Eagle Eye sells hydrometers. So, uh, but anyway, once again, if the customer wants it, what do you do? You do Pacific gravity readings. But George is right, because the Pacific gravity of potassium hydroxide doesn't change. Without getting into a long explanation, on a lead-acid battery, the sulfate from the sulfuric acid migrates into the plates, right? And when you recharge it, the sulfate, you force it back into the electrolyte. That doesn't happen with the NICAD. So your specific gravity is always going to be the same. Why am I giving you all these excuses to talk? Because I kissed the Barney Stone, George. And probably they've all listened to me this morning, so they don't want to listen to me anymore. Anyway, next question... Ladies and gentlemen, yes, sir. Carry on. I wonder if you guys could speak on the. Uh... Well, I'll let George answer that one. Okay. Yes. So, okay. The the question is, what are the requirements for redundancy under the latest NERC regulations for substations? That's an interesting one because it does take a little bit of interpretation. Basically, the it comes under what's called TPL 001-5 edition of it, and this is. It's a standard, but it's a planning document as well. The objective of the whole document is they want to remove all single points of failure within the network. At the present moment, our utility system is not nowhere near as... It doesn't have redundancy in lots of areas, and you can lose one part and lose a large part of the network. The object is to try and reduce those number of failures. And in the Dash 5 edition, they decided to identify the DC power system as a potential point of failure. It shows they're learning something, so that's good. But because all of you that are involved within the utility side of the industry will realize that it is very difficult in the majority of substations to actually create redundancy. They're very small, the control rooms are small, the, the batteries are up against the wall. Yes, you can put a charger, maybe add a second charger, but you definitely can't add a second battery. So with that in mind, they actually provided two ways to get out of providing the redundancy. One, you have to be able to monitor the voltage of the DC power system. Now, some people treat that as the, DC, uh, the, the actual voltage of the charger. Not necessarily. It's, a, it's the overall voltage of the system, which in fact should mean it's measured at the battery, to be honest. And you also want to know if the battery has continuity. If, both, if you can monitor both of those conditions, then... 
you can and, it, and it's reportable to network operating center or some place where the alarms are monitored 24/7 you don't need to meet the redundancy requirement there are um, they say that you know basically as long as it's reported and they're eight hour battery they should be able to go out there and fix something I'm not as convinced about that part of it, to be honest, but if we're not going to achieve that, we can do that. We can achieve the monitoring part of it with Vigilant Monitor because we can we measure the content, we check the continuity with float current, and we obviously are measuring the, the battery voltage, and so we're, we're alarming on that. So we, we comply with that part. But the other problem with it is, is that the majority of these substations actually have SCR chargers mounted on the wall. And those of you ever had the pleasure of trying to change one of those it's a two or a three-man job to try and unbolt it from the wall disconnect it from the power supply and all the rest and all that part then connect a new one up and based on the fact that murphy has followed me around for most of my life i would almost guarantee you that the only charger that they have back in the warehouse doesn't fit that same profile it's probably got a different set of connections the ac power goes on the opposite side or something to that effect and you're there with a battery that's rapidly deteriorating, trying to work out how to get this charger back on. So even if you can comply with the monitoring system, one of the better ways to do it is to have a look at one of the new modular DC chargers, the modular chargers that we have that cumber 120 volt systems. Then you have the ability to um, say, okay, well, you have a small modular charger. TerraSec only has to carry one charger with them in order to swap it out, and you can bring the system back up again. In fact, in most cases, if you have made the actual system fully redundant with an extra charger, you're not in any rush. All you have to do is go out there and place the redundant charger when the time comes. And that makes life a lot simpler. Unfortunately, our colleague from the company that built our modular chargers is not here yet, but you'll meet him later on with a bit of luck, and you'll see some of the units when we go downstairs. I do tend to get myself in trouble, and I'll probably do it again at the present moment, because if you all remember the Geico advert that got into real trouble about the fact that it was so easy a caveman could do it, well, I'm going to make the comment that changing out a modular battery charger is so easy, even a salesman can do it. I remember when George got in trouble with that remark, but anyway... I always get in trouble with that remark. Just to answer your question a little bit, Further, George did an excellent job. First of all, I'm I'm not a big fan of NERC, uh, NERC PRC 005, which is sixth iteration now. It's really a compromise document. It, uh, NERC was put in there to try and bring some sanity to the electrical distribution system, and uh, they had to come up with quickly with a document that showed that they were maintaining their batteries. For an actual fact, they come up with a document. That was a compromise from IEEE uh, 450 and IEEE 1188, uh, which are very good documents. If you're going to do a maintenance program, stick to IEEE. And you'll meet all the requirements of NERC. Actually, I wrote a technical notice, probably up on our website, and compared IEEE maintenance requirements to NERC maintenance requirements. And I demonstrated how the... NERC requirements were really a compromise. The, with respect to redundancy, I've been over probably hundreds of substations, but very few of them are redundant. And as George said, 
you try and make them redundant. It's really, really difficult. So the best solution if you're talking to a client is to tell them, look, if you go with a one of these modular power systems, the best way to go is with a convection-cooled charger. For some reason, other utilities don't like fan-cooled chargers. They uh, prefer convection-cooled, and they're right in some ways, but to go with convection-cooled charger, modular charger system, and you can just plug chargers in and out. doesn't really take a caveman to do it. Yes, sir? Installing the installing the vision because VSC zero zero five in four F I believe it is. No, it's TPO zero zero one. Well, is the redundancy? Yeah. Part. No, but I'm, we're talking about the meeting the requirements of NERC PRC zero zero five. If you install a monitor, it tells you things you don't have to do, and that's basically everything up until year five or five, uh, year five or six, when you have to do a load test. But installing a monitor will meet the letter of the law of PRC 005. But not TPL 001. I didn't say that, George. I said <laughs> PRC 005. But anyway, George is the expert on TPL, so uh, he's right. It doesn't meet the requirements of that. And by the way, just in the interest of full disclosure about IEEE regulations, Alan sat on both those committees he talked about. That's why he's so convinced they're right. Yeah, well, George, you know. Do you get a cut on that? Uh, no, I don't. Actually, in fact, uh, I, I contribute to a lot of IEEE standards, by the way. We don't even get a free copy of the standard. So all the copies I've got on my computer that I use frequently are all final drafts. So, but. Being on an IEEE committee, and George's as well, to me it's been a really eye, real eye-opener, and you learn why you do things. Not to, what to do, but why you do things. And that's the most important part of our job, I think. Yeah, the, the, the one thing, just talking about IEEE standards, when we're talking about from a utility point of view and your question about monitoring, there is a IEEE document 1491 that was originally a guide to battery monitoring. And I have to admit that Alan was the first chair of the first edition of it, which is why we still fight with some of the stuff he put in there, but that's okay. And I sit on, we're currently revising the edition, and this is where it gets interesting, because one of the reasons we are revising it again is to turn into a recommended practice at the request of the utilities, because they are going to use what is in that document as the basis of satisfying their requirements under PRC 005 and TPL 001. That's where they're going, to, they're going to justify what they're doing within that. But the answer is yes, if, as long as you monitor the battery and it is monitored to a remote site that's manned 24-7, you comply with the standard in that respect. Cybersecurity is kind of one of the things, we're going to have a podcast on this subject in the future, but my main concern about cybersecurity would not be the monitoring or anything. If you look at a substation and look at all the equipment in there that's manufactured in Asia, you've got security breach waiting to happen there. And it's interesting to see that some of the utilities are now mandating that none of the equipment they installed, they install from now on, is manufactured outside the European Union or the United States. Because that's, that would be the first line of attack. So anyway, I don't want to prolong on cybersecurity, but 
George mentioned 1491. Get that document and read it because it tells you 18 things that you can monitor on a battery. When I tell people that 18, you can actually monitor 18 things. Yes, you can. So get that document, read it. Not only does it tell you what you can monitor, it tells you why you monitor which is the most important thing. But they don't want it yet because I haven't finished it. Well, the document that stands at the moment, George, before you get your hands on it, is still a pretty good document. I'm not going to comment. If anything. I write something or come out, George will change it. Okay? So, just to say, he disagreed with me. But anyway, we agree on most things. and uh, Except punctuation. Yeah, well, we won't even go there. George doesn't know how to use a comma. Or a period. So uh, I have a problem with that because a lot of the stuff he writes is good, but I, I have to go back and punctuate it. So much so that on one occasion we were writing a paper and I sent it to him. And at the end of it, there were two rows of commas, two rows of periods, and it was one long sentence, the whole document. <laughs> and it said, insert where necessary. <laughs> so so any, any, any question, any any further questions? Hope we, I'm sure we have. Yes, Nigel. I, I see you itching there, Nigel. Come on, Nigel. Does everybody know Nigel? If, if you don't, you don't want to. So. <laughs> so what's the question, Nigel? Alan, have you come across a lot of stratification in flooded cells, and how would you go about testing for it or looking for it? This is for you because I know what George thinks about it. Okay. Stratification, for those that don't know, is where the electrolyte in the battery stratified. You know, it's done towards the bottom of the cell, the specific gravity would higher. You get up towards the top, it'll be lower. So when you want to try and get rid of stratification, there's two ways, two ways of doing it. One is you put the battery in equalize, and that will help mix up the electrolyte. The other is you get a long filling tube with a bubble on the end. Put it, get it down to the, the bottom and just bubble it. So, yeah, don't, but... Don't, don't blow it. No, 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 don't blow. Don't. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, it's very important because when you're taking specific gravity readings, that's why when you get a hydrometer that the tube is long enough to go down to the middle of a battery. That's really where you want to take a specific gravity. If you take it at the top, you're fooling yourself. So I don't know if that answers your question no, or not, Nigel. He wants to know how you will identify strat potential stratification before so you can do the equalize. How, how would you know from looking at the battery or measuring the battery, you would know that stratification is taking place? Well, only if it's been stratified for a long period. There would be slight discoloration in the plates, maybe. You wouldn't see, uh, unless the electrolyte's contaminated, you wouldn't see anything, any indication what of that. What happens if you're looking at the, old, the, the cell voltages over a period of time? Okay. Well, since you said that, George, you answer it because I probably have a different answer. My answer is very simply that you will start to see if you have a battery that has got nice steady voltages all in a similar range. If you start to see a divergence from them, it's a good indication of stratification. And it's time then to do an equalized charge. My colleague out in the audience here wants to de design a piece of equipment that we can sell to you. I just, I think there's other things he can design that we could use better than that. But, um, you know, it is. Well, 
I'm the best salesman they've got, <laughs> but just not to sell junk. I, I'm not entirely convinced. I'm not entirely convinced about that, mainly because uh, Nigel hasn't paid me yet. But <laughs> but uh, it is a problem only if a battery stands for a very long time. And uh, you get that, with uh, obviously, with some batteries that are in a standby application. But if you're doing regular maintenance on it and you have a slight discharge or recharge, I can't really see it getting so stratified that you're going to see much of a change in voltage. If the whole battery is sitting there static for a long time, most of the cells will stratify to a certain extent, and the voltage is going to be the same for all of them because they're all stratified. Exactly. And uh, by the way, Nigel, I, I don't take the euro anymore. <laughs> Okay, any more questions before we wrap up this? I think it's about time to wrap up, is it, David? Sure, we can take another question. Okay. Sure. Pardon? He's <laughs> <laughs> got the better beer, Ireland. Or... Oh, well, I'm a Guinness drinker, so uh, I don't know about... Scottish make some pretty good beer as well. Germans make good beer. The uh, North America give birth to... Uh, what's watered down beer, essentially? Like, well, I was going to tell you a story about uh, there was a beer convention right down the road here in Milwaukee, you know, the home of American suds and watered down beer. And at this convention, there was Martha Guinness, uh, Adolfo Coors, and what was the uh, Anheuser Bush. So after they had this, the sessions for the afternoon, some, one of them said, Come on, let's go and have a drink. So they went to the bar and Coors said, uh, I'll have a Coors Light, please. And uh, Bush said, uh, I'll have a Bud Light, please. And Arthur Guinness said, I'll just have a drink of water. And they looked at him and said, You're not drinking? Sorry, he looked at him and said, What? He said, Well, if you guys are not drinking, I'm not. <laughs> Ed, I'm surprised you... Ed's drifting off here. I'm surprised Ed did, didn't try and stump me. question is, when you're using ohmic values to trend the state of health of the battery, when do you consider limits, shall I call, Ed, to say the battery's going bad or has failed? I know George and I have different ideas about this. We've discussed this before. But let's say that the when ohmic measurements first come into vogue, uh, IEEE... Actually, give it the name ohmic measurements because there were three different schools out there. There was Len Albert with his DC resistance. There was uh, BTEC with impedance, I believe, George. Yes. And there was uh, Midtronics with conductance. But Avo Biddle also had conductance. But there were three schools of thought. And they were all trying to feed information into the IEEE. They all wanted their methodology, methodology to, to, to be the standard. So IEEE come up with this term, ohmic measurements. Because that's what you were doing. You were measuring essentially the resistance through a battery. Back in the, I believe it was the late 80s, early 90s, when this is just coming in vogue, didn't have a lot of raw data. So the, what do you call them, the electrical, EPRI, Electrical Power Research Institute in Charlotte, decided they were going to test 
all these batteries to see if there's any correlation. So I'm talking about hundreds of batteries, maybe thousands of batteries. And they produced a, from that, they produced a scatter graph as to the state of health of the batteries. Uh, notice I didn't say capacity, I said state of health. So from this scatter graph, they derived, uh, in actual fact, Eagle Eye has a technical paper on it. The reason I know this is because I wrote it. But anyway, it says that they analyzed all the figures and they come up with a mean of 30% outside norm. Okay? 30%, say you're using DC resistance, 30% rise from the baseline signify that the battery had a problem. And 50% above baseline signified that there was 90% chance that battery was bad. And that's, that's what's written into the document. That's what you'll see in IEEE 1188 to this day. But George and I had discussions on this, and George is right in some instances, and maybe he'll voice on this now, why he doesn't think that's a good thing. Okay, first thing I'm going to do is, is question you there, Ed. When you say battery, what do you mean? I mean a battery cell. Battery well, let's, let's talk about battery unit. unit. Let's keep the terminology within the IEEE rules. Okay. okay, it's a unit, but that's not what it actually meant when they originally did it. They were talking about an overall rise of the whole battery, as an indication of potential battery failure. They weren't looking at the individual unit. My argument is that when you're looking at it from because the overall rise, you cannot correlate it to the capacity of the battery. I'm a great believer in monitoring. Don't take me wrong. I've been, I did my first paper on monitoring in 1994, so I'll tell you how long I've been involved in this. But it's not a case of, the, the point is if you're looking at it from the overall battery and your average rise in the ohmic value is 30%, yes, you're starting to look at batteries going towards failure. 50%, as Alan said, you can go that way. It's almost certainly failed at that point. But the point is that if you're looking at it and using it at the individual unit level, cell or 12-volt block, if you have a unit or cell in that system that is rising at a different rate than all the rest, you have a unit that is failing. Because they were all designed the same, they all came out of the plant at the same time, so the chemical reaction under float should be exactly the same all the time. It will, should all rise together. But if you have an individual unit that is changing value, is that you have that, that unit is heading towards failure. The electrochemical reaction within it has changed, and it's changing. And it, so that's what you're looking at. That's the time you start to say that that particular unit there could be a potential point of failure within that battery. And if the rate of change is extremely fast, it's time to get that out of there because I'm always guarantee you that the moment you put a load on that battery, especially if it's a VRLA one, you will see that battery die. But basically, if you're trending voltage, you're not really trending anything. Voltage can differ. You know, George said that you know, all these units or cells come out of the factory all the same. I'll disagree there, George. They don't. There's differences in internal resistance. There's manufacturing differences. There could be different batches, even the same date code. You know, it could be a different production run. It could have been on the formation tables, longer or shorter. A lot of uh, it depends there. 
But uh, George is right in that trending is, is really important. And if you see something trending a little bit different from others, yeah, get it out of there. But when you look at it uh, at a unit level, seller unit level, you know, George is right. But uh, I'm still a good believer in uh, ohmic measurements, no matter what form you, t- you take. And I'm still a believer in the 30 and 50% rule. You know, it might not apply to all, but it's, you know, it's rule of thumb. Some battery may have failed at 25%. Some maybe work fine at 50%. But you, you do need some baseline. You do need, do need some you know, rule of thumb. So while George is right from the way he's looking at it, and he has looked at it, believe you me, over the years, looked at many different bar charts and graphs. But uh, from my perspective, Ed, you know, that's, I, I will still stick with the 30%, 50% rule. And people a lot smarter than I, I am agree with me. So, But don't forget the IEEE 1188, of which I'm the vice chair at the moment. It is a consensus document. It has to satisfy the manufacturers, has to satisfy the users, it has to satisfy the service companies. So, And we have representatives from all those companies, from the UPS companies, the utility companies, the telecom companies, all serve on, on that IEEE 1188. And it is a compromise, but it's the best we've got. And I'll just, I'll add one little minor point to that, Ed. Uh, as Alan said, uh, we are almost taking the point that we don't look at the voltage, we're less concerned about the voltage. But I, I, I had fun on one paper I did at BACCON where I actually looked at the voltage as part of a failure mechanism. And what we discovered was that the actual voltage in the cell, in the particular cell this was, it changed before the ohmic value changed. But it was, the level of change within it was inside the margins that were set on the limit analysis. So it was never noticed until you actually went into the data and looked at it very closely. So the answer to that is almost everything that happens inside the battery will tell you a piece of information. As Alan said, there's all these different ways it's not so much that all these different parameters, it's the point at which you're measuring that will tell you different information. And that's one of the great things about having a monitor is you capture all that information during normal operations. But it's um, there's no single, to me there is absolutely no, no single measurement point that gives you a categoric answer as to the battery's state of health. It all, it all needs to be looked at. An MD that is relying purely on ohmic values as a way of, basically measuring battery state of health, is uh, deluding themselves. Well, well, I'll disagree again there, George. Good. Uh, they, using ohmic values won't, obviously won't tell you battery capacity. And if anybody tells you that, they're lying. It's good indication of battery state of health, I think. It's proven to be over 90% accurate. And I'd rather have something that's 90% accurate than, than just taking voltages which is 0% accurate. It's not going to tell you anything, really. If you're fooling yourself, the customer or the user, if they're just measuring battery voltage. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying is that the individual readings, they will tend to react together and they'll correlate to give you a better picture. If you're simply looking at the one value, it's not the best way to look at it. You need to look at all the data to the, with reference to that cell or unit that you're checking. And you may see other things that happen. You know, something that 
I discovered when doing a discharge test on, on one large data center for AT&T was the area manager had just been given a brand new Fleur thermal camera and he was having great fun running around this battery room as we were doing the discharge testing. But the interesting thing was that he, on the four cells that failed during the discharge, he detected them on the thermal camera at least 30 seconds before I seen a voltage change on the monitor. So in other words, the thermal camera was telling us ahead of time of the failure. So that tells you something else. The, the actual temperature of the cell is at that point almost more important than the voltages. You're right, George. And there, and I just kind of conclude and wrap things up from my perspective, in a way, at a BATCON conference about 10 years ago, the question was asked uh, of a panel of so-called experts that if they could only measure two things on a battery, what would they be? And almost unanimously, they said one would be temperature, cell temperature, not ambient temperature, cell temperature, and the other thing would be charge current. So if you find that the temperature goes up and the current goes up, okay, that's why the current has gone up. The current will increase through temperature, temperature, the internal temperature of the battery, because the resistance of the battery changes. But if you find the current increasing and the temperature stays the same, you have a problem. And just as a rule of thumb on that, the charge current should be something like one milliamp per ampere hour, say, of a battery. Now, if that, changed, if that charge changes to three milliamps per ampere hour, you have a problem. You're either heading towards thermal runaway or you have a failed cell or a failed unit. I was waiting for you to disagree with me, to disagree with me George. No, no, I, I've given up on that. It's, um... I won. <laughs> <laughs> George and I, actually, one stage of my career, I worked for George, believe it or not. Uh, another stage of my career, George worked for me. And then, well, I don't know, but anyway, we, <laughs> we, we, we decided one time that we'd work with each other and not against each other, so we formed a consulting company, which was quite successful, actually. Yep. Uh, except we found out that with a consulting company, there's two problems. One is you're either too busy and you have to turn customers away and they don't come back, or the other one was you didn't have any work to do. There was no kind of constant cash flow. So then we went our different ways again, but uh, we've known each other for over 40 years, and most of 90% of the time we agree. But I think the fact that we don't agree on some things is a good thing. Do you know that it, you said over 40 years? Next year it will be 50 years we have known each other and worked together at various times. Well, you, you, you aged quicker than I did, George, so maybe that's why. Well, <laughs> well... You're, being a consultant is something you do when you can't do anything else. So when you don't get a real job, you become a consultant. Okay, let me, let me wind this one up then for this podcast. I want to thank you all for attending. I hope you all enjoyed it. We did. Guarantee you that. So thanks again, everyone. That's the end of this podcast. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. 
Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.